Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Now, here's the host of WP Tonic, Jonathan Dinwood and John Locke. Welcome to WP Tonic episode 195. Today we've got the immense pleasure of having as our guest, Bill Gadless from Imagine. Bill, for those in the audience that don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So I am, as you said, I'm president and co-founder of Imagine. Imagine is a... Um, is a full service uh, digital agency. Obviously we work with WordPress. Um, that's why we're here today on, on your podcast. Uh, we're based in the Boston region. We have a, another office down in South Florida, which is where I normally reside. I'm actually up in our Boston headquarters here today that you might see a little bit behind me, um, seeing one of our conference rooms. We are um, just around 50 people. Uh, we, we do, we do websites. As I mentioned on WordPress, we do, um, we do a lot of digital marketing from SEO to paid advertising to social media consulting. We do a ton of web maintenance support. Um, pretty focused. I know it's one of the things that we'll probably touch upon here, John, today. Pretty focused in terms of um, who we do all that for. Uh, we, we have a handful of, of, uh, of target niche industries that we work with. Um, and we, we can, uh, you know, I'll get into that in more detail as we, as we start talking here, but, uh, that's, uh, that's generally who've been around for 20 years. That's another, um, another interesting note. We're pretty old for this business. Um, we got in right around when it all started. No, and it was a great time. And that's, that leads into our first question. Just want to ask you, how did, how did you first get started, uh, doing websites and how did you land your very first clients? Yeah. So um, so I'm going to go way back here. Um, I was, um, so back in the early nineties, just uh, again, I feel, I feel like I'm dating myself here, but I guess, uh, I guess that's inevitable. So I was, uh, I was a college dropout, um, kind of a jack of all trades marketing guide. Um, Back then, obviously kind of pre web, I was, I was somewhat of an advertising and direct mail um, independent marketer doing a variety of things for various clients, small manufacturers, local businesses, um, kind of doing whatever they needed. I, I kind of became a quasi designer by default. I was always pretty good at writing. I studied all the advertising greats. So I was just, I was a marketer still am, um, not really a technical guy. So, so I was doing a variety of those things for a whole bunch of clients and my co-founder here at Imagine, we were not partners at the time, um, but we were doing business together. Brett Cohen, he's, he's my co-founder. He was similar to me in terms of um, same model. He was an independent marketer, did a variety of things for clients. He was, Brett has always been a lot more technical than, than me. So even back then he was more in the printing business. He would doing a little bit, um, more database stuff for some of his clients, also somewhat of a designer, um, not so much of a, of a sales and marketing type, but, um, but I would turn to him for various things. He would turn to me for various things. So we, we, we developed that type of relationship in that we would, we would help each other out with various projects. So what happened was back in 
I think it was early 96, one of Brett's clients who he was doing some printing for said, hey, can you do a website? And, uh, and Brett, Brett said, no, but I will. And, um, and, and first of all, that's how Brett's always been. Um, he's the type of guy that, like many in our industry, will figure it out as he goes. He'll, he'll dig into it and he'll learn it. And I think that's how most of us in this web industry have learned. Um, and so that's what he did. And, and you can imagine back in, uh, I wish I could pull up a screenshot right now, but back in 96, you can imagine what that website looked like. There were spinning dots to the eyes and fire coming out of letters and, and, you know, every, everything that you could do on a page. And, um, you know, so he built a site, he called me up and he said, Hey, Bill, I think this is something that you should look at because I think this is going to be something. And, um, obviously has become something this, this web thing. And, um, and so I, I being more on the sales and marketing side, the way that I've always gone about selling any sort of service. And, and I think this pertains to, to, again, some of the stuff that we'll get into in more depth here today, John is I've always focused a little bit more on the viability and marketability of any product or service more than becoming the expert on actually executing on that product or service. So that's exactly how I approached it back in the day. I literally took a ride around uh, a, a local industrial park, wrote down a bunch of companies that looked like small manufacturers, thought that they might all need websites. Um, because no one had websites back then. So it was, in a way, it was an easy pitch. So I went home after writing down the names of all of these, uh, all of these businesses, because one, one other, I think, interesting, important note is neither Brett or I really had a dime to our name. Um, so we're basically a couple of broke college dropouts doing whatever we could to, to make a dime, pay our bills. And um, so I couldn't buy a list. I couldn't do this in any sort of sophisticated way. So wrote down all these companies that I drove around looking at. Um, next morning, uh, called each of them just to ask who the appropriate contact name would be at each of these companies who would make decisions around their marketing. In many cases, it was the owner, uh, the founder, the CEO, because these were small businesses. Um, put together a direct mail letter because again, that's what I had come from. That's what I knew. And interestingly, it was, there was a very easy mail merge to do at this time. Nobody even had domain names. So this is how far, how far back we go. So I mail merged right in the letter, um, a brief note at the top of the letter written in brush script, handwritten font, you know, something along the lines of, Hey, John, um, I looked up and noticed that, whatever.com domain is available for purchase. I think that you should call me and have me reserve this for you before someone else takes it. And, um, and then wrote a little bit about websites and, and that was my letter. So from this one batch of letters that was like maybe 40 companies, I think I got like 10 phone calls of people that wanted me to register their domain. Now 10 doesn't sound like a lot, but out of 40, that's a very high response rate in marketing. So it was very easy to get response to something that was on the verge of becoming so hot, was piquing a lot of curiosity. Everybody knew they needed to at least explore this thing. So, so I got like 10 calls. Then I, I think I, I set up a couple of meetings from that and realized that 10 wasn't enough. 
and I need to do something with the rest of the other 30 or 40 that didn't call me. So I picked up the phone and called them. Um, and for those who didn't answer and who I had to leave a voicemail for, I think I called them three or four times over a period of three or four weeks. Ended up with a handful more meetings from that effort. So, um, so went out there. And the reason I'm going into such detail is that's also going to pertain to a lot of the ways we have continued to do a lot of sales and marketing here at Imagine over the years, even today as we speak. Um, but so from those efforts, I went out on the road and went out, met these companies and sold them websites, not having a clue what I was talking about when it came to websites. Uh, all I could really tell them is you need to have one. It should look good and I can do it for you with no portfolio to show. Um, no, I couldn't even explain to them what HTML meant at the time. So, uh, or stood for. Uh, but it was that easy. So, um, so I, I went out and sold a few of those websites, probably ranging anywhere from $800 to a couple thousand dollars a piece. And, um, and I was on my way. Uh, then I had to turn to, so as I mentioned, Brett, my co-founder, a lot more technical than I am, um, had already been diving in with a few of his clients and he helped me put the websites together. Um, I was continuing out there selling some more of them. I kind of, as I mentioned, I became somewhat of a quasi designer. So I was putting together some of the graphics. He would build the sites for me. We would split the money. We weren't real partners, but that's how things got going. Within six months, we were officially partners. We had formed a company name and had both scrapped everything else that we had been doing in terms of all the offline marketing for our clients, printing and everything else. And we were officially in the web business. And that was, Back in '96, that's uh, that's an amazing story. And one thing that really strikes me about this that that perhaps is missing from uh, a lot of web agencies today is you were really proactive about going out and getting clients. You started with direct mail, and then for those people that didn't respond, and by the way, twenty five percent is an awesome response. That's huge. Yeah. that you picked up the phone, you called people, and you know that leads into the next question is how important is marketing and sales to the overall financial health of a web agency? Yeah, so um, I might be biased because that's who I am. I'm a, I'm a sales and marketing guy. It's almost all I know. Um, but coming, put on the hat of an agency owner, um, I can't imagine not being obsessed about that particular component every single day, 24 seven, uh, five minutes before we hopped on here together. I had been sitting in this very room for an hour talking to our director of business development about the things we're doing to generate more leads right now and tweaking certain things. And, and because we're undergoing a significant shift in how we're doing that, um, as we speak, and I can get into tactics a little bit later, but in terms of its importance, it's everything. I mean, and, you know, even though I referred to Brett as more on the technical side, we do share that mentality. Um, we have always considered Imagine more of a sales and marketing organization than anything else. We, we think about it. We strategize on it. We execute on it. Not always successfully. Um, it's, a, it's a perpetual testing process to 
determine what works, what doesn't work, how we can get more conversations with more of the right prospective clients and how we can close more of them. Um, I will share some of that with you here today if, if, if we go there. Um, but I'll never claim to know it all because we're literally figuring it out every single day of our career. But once again, I'll say, I believe it is the mo single most important reason for any level of success that we've had here, starting with, as I just explained to you from day one, how we got our very first client. Um, and even through today, it's, it is, uh, it's a very strong focus here. And I think, I think that, um, especially being out there as, as you are in the WordPress community, um, I've spoken at a lot of WordCamps. We're pretty involved in the community. So I've talked to a, a lot of people, um, whether they're independents or whether they're owners of small agencies. Uh, I think there's, there's, there's not enough focus on it. And, um, and it's been, it's been really cool meeting so many people in the community and talking about a lot of the sales and marketing strategies and hearing them, um, the feedback that they really want to step up their game when it comes to that and want to learn how to get more clients. And, um, so I think there's not enough focus on it in a typical agency, but the encouraging thing is that so many owners realize they do need to be better at it. And, uh, and hopefully conversations like we're having here today can, can even help with a little bit of that. No, definitely. I, I think it's a conversation that, that needs to be had and especially in the context of, of WordCamps and in the WordPress community, especially, I think there's uh, over my personal opinion, there's an overemphasis on the technical knowledge and an underemphasis on the business and uh, marketing aspect of for, it. For sure. And at, at the end of the day, it comes down to what good, and I don't want to downplay the technical knowledge. You've got to be great at this stuff and you've got to, you've, you, you've got to be more valuable than your competitor but it doesn't mean a thing if you can't demonstrate that value to a prospective client via some sort of sales and marketing effort. Well, that's very true. If, if, if you're not doing it for yourself, how can you sell it to someone else? Exactly. One of the things that I've heard you talk about a lot um, when we were talking about getting more clients and uh, you know, pulling people into your, to your sales funnel is, is I've heard you say uh, plenty of times that your portfolio in the early days was your most valuable asset. Why, why do you say that? And what are some of the things that you did to nurture your portfolio as time went on? Yep. So the answer to this, I think, is, is, is a, bit of, a bit of an evolving answer in terms of the portfolio's importance back then versus today. And I'll, and I'll describe the difference. But in, in the early days, so from anybody's listening to this who are, who's starting out and, and you need to build, build your portfolio to show some work and maybe you don't have a lot of it, or maybe you don't have a lot of it in a particular market that you want to be in, then building that portfolio is critical and, and, and probably the most important valuable asset that you could have as a web firm or agency, um, because that's what you're going to be judged on more than anything else. And so for us, in terms of early days and over the years, as we wanted to focus on and specialize in some vertical markets, the portfolio was everything. We needed to be able to show work, relevant work. It's always been our strongest sales tool. Um, other than relationship building, the portfolio has been key. So, 
So in recognizing that value, there was almost an attitude of whatever it takes to build that portfolio. I don't think we did much for free, but we certainly did work at a loss. It was never about the profits when it came to recognizing, hey, we need to get a couple sites in this particular market so that we can show them to other people. So we would sacrifice profits. We would take on projects that maybe weren't the perfect fit for us. Um, which is not a good business model on a whole, but in the interest of getting a couple of accounts that might pay dividends in terms of other accounts, other similar accounts that it might help you acquire, um, it's paramount. Having that portfolio of relevant work to show is everything, and I can't emphasize that enough. I think what has changed, um, and, and, I, and I actually think this applies to anybody, whether they're starting out or whether they've been doing this for 20 years like us, is you, you can't just show a pretty portfolio and think that that in itself is going to impress, um, impress your, your prospective client. Um, today, more than ever, it's easy for anybody to show a, a theme that they used, show a site they might have built on Wix.com or Squarespace, and it can be beautiful. So you can't you can't expect to differentiate and demonstrate your value as a web designer, as a web developer, by merely showing some pretty pictures in the eye candy. It's critical. It's a critical component to the sale, but you need to do a lot more in terms of demonstrating how exactly you brought value to that client and how you arrived at that finished product, maybe showing even the process along the way, building client stories, what was what was this particular client's problem that they came to us to solve and 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 what was the um what was the process we went through with them maybe from wireframes to 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 a site map to initial design comps to the finished product to how the project went along the way in terms of project management and how you might have held their hands through the project to even some of the results that came out of the finished product I think that the portfolio today has to be that deep in terms of detail versus just showing pretty pictures. And that's kind of been the change for us. I'm really glad you said that. I mean, it, uh, over time, there's been agencies that I, I've seen uh, case studies in their portfolios. Tian and Lux was a good example when they were still around, where they had these really detailed stories of not only what problem they were trying to solve, but the whole process for solving it and, uh, you know, the final outcome. And they told, like, the whole story of, of uh, how they, they helped that client. You know, it, it took them on a whole journey. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's key today because as you know, as we all know, we're doing websites, you could throw a stone and hit another web designer um, anywhere you are. So you've really got to differentiate and demonstrate your value and not just be a commodity player um, like everybody else that's building websites. I love how you say that too. And, and, and that's something that was on my mind too, because as you said, when you started in the 90s, web design was still new. Now we not only have a lot of people doing it and coding is, you know, you can learn to do it in a variety of different ways, but you have all these wonderful tools, you have themes, you have plugins that you can use. So 
my question to you is, is how are freelancers and smaller agencies limiting their earning potential? Is it by not differentiating? And what can they do to get to the bigger clients? Yeah, it's a great question and, and one that I think is very important because, yes, there's no doubt that um, whether it's an independent, a freelancer, a small firm, a big firm, I think on a whole, people in this industry are undervaluing themselves and as a result, under-earning. Um, and it's not all about the money. This isn't about greed. This isn't necessarily about building wealth or building big, big agencies and driving Ferraris. It's, it's about the fact that life is expensive. Um, things like healthcare and rent and mortgages and food and gas cost a lot of money. Um, and so, um, so it, it's important to maximize your earnings. We, we, and, and whatever that means for any individuals obviously will vary greatly, but, um, but you don't want to undersell yourself. You, you're doing this to, to support your lifestyle and the essentials and, and the things that you want to be able to do and have. And, and, and it's important to first recognize that and recognize that earning money is not a bad thing. I think that that's, Step one, and I'm going to get into some more specifics with regard to to the earnings. But step one is you can't feel guilty for this. I um, I remember at one of one of the talks that I did, um, someone in the audience who who I've actually become pretty friendly with and and had a chance to discuss this in more detail. But one of the questions that was that was asked after my uh, after my time was over, she said, "Do you feel guilty about charging?" Um, whatever numbers I had been throwing out, maybe it was 30, 40, 50, hundred thousand dollars for WordPress because it's free. Um, and that attitude was, was very telling. Um, and it was indicative to me of, of, of what a lot of people in this industry might feel. Um, we're not selling WordPress. We're using WordPress. <laughs> you know, we're selling our value as talented, intelligent, consultants, I hate that word, um, called strategists who are providing value to our clients that they can't provide themselves. That's what we're doing. And, and the worth of that is um, it's somewhat subjective. Um, it varies by project size. It varies by client size. It varies by staff size um, in my case. But you know, there's value that you're delivering that is not WordPress and, and you should be paid what the value of that product or service is worth to that client. And, um, and it's usually more than what you're currently charging. Um, and I can say vastly that from the people that I meet um, out at WordCamps and, and, and various other conferences that, that that's the case almost across the board, that almost everybody I meet could be charging anywhere from 20% to 10,000% more than what they're currently charging um, for these services. And, um, and I think it's, you know, when we all start out in this business, including the story that, that, that I, I started this with, um, we, we go after what we're comfortable with. We, we, we go after small businesses who, who, for one, we know we're comfortable and confident talking to. Um, we also know that they're the, if you're a freelancer or you're a one-person shop or a two-person shop, you also have to kind of recognize 
what types of companies are more likely to contract to somebody at my level and my size. So obviously we all start out targeting smaller clients, smaller projects, and that's fine. Um, but I think that you, you need to quickly recognize your, your skills, your value and where and how you can move up the food chain and ultimately get paid more for what you do. And that's a combination of doing bigger, harder stuff, uh, which obviously comes with bigger price tag, but also in many cases comes with merely charging more for what you're already doing. And, um, I tell a story in, in one of the talks that I do where we, um, we had been we had been charging next to nothing for a lot of the websites that we were doing back in the early 2000s. And uh, one of the big conferences in this industry back then was put on by CNET. It was Builder.com, and they held it in New Orleans every year. And Brett and I went to that a couple of years in a row, and all we heard uh, at these conferences was how little we were charging. We heard the numbers everybody was throwing around, and we were saying, what the hell are we doing? We're, we're making nothing. And, and these people who, whose stuff isn't even as good as ours um, are throwing around these astronomical numbers. We got back from one of those conferences and literally scratched out the pricing on some of the proposals that we had going out and added a zero um, just as a test. And we got the deals. So, um, you know, it's not always going to be that easy. In many cases, as you increase your pricing, you do have to move up the food chain a bit in terms of the type of client you're approaching, maybe some bigger projects, but in certain cases, you can literally just increase your pricing as long as you can demonstrate value and, and educate the prospect on why they need to spend that money. Um, and in ev practically every case where we've ever increased our pricing, we've also increased our sales and increased our close rate. Um, so I think it's a very important point that you bring up. And I think practically everybody that I meet in this industry can be charging more and should be charging more and not feel guilty about it. No, I, I think that's a great point. And, and I think that's something um, perhaps, especially in the WordPress community that people struggle with is I, I think a lot of people take their pricing by looking to the left and looking to the right and seeing what their contemporaries are charging instead of looking at the wider um, uh, world ecosystem of, of web design and, and looking at what people who don't feel guilty uh, about uh, getting compensated for the value that they're providing charge. Um, you know, so a question, uh, I know this wasn't on our list, but one thing that I want to ask is when it comes to having a value conversation or determining the value that uh, a web project is going to have for a client, how, do, how does that happen? Yeah. So, you know, I think we, we all need to, and, and this can be a little bit, a little bit of a challenging task. I think anybody that's offering any sort of service needs to identify what their true value proposition is. Um, and, and that can be, it can be challenging. And I recommend that, um, that people sit down and actually take the time and do a SWOT analysis. And for anybody who, who doesn't know what that acronym SWOT stands for? It's strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Um, typical kind of college term. Not that not that I learned it there, because um, I didn't go for very long. But um, but it's it's actually a really valuable exercise if you sit down and identify the market around you um, 
and then determine where you fit within the marketplace, carve out your position in terms of which things do you really feel you can bring to a prospective client that will make you stand out versus a competitor. And, and you have to do this because again, if, in, this, in this commoditized world of building websites, um, by merely having nice designs or by merely being a strong WordPress developer, um, it, it's not enough. You know, there's, like I said, you could throw a stone and find somebody else who has that same exact value proposition. So, um, so it, it's, it's, it's hard for me to give many examples of what's going to make that particular individual strong. Um, for us, you know, as if I were to think about it, because these, these have evolved, um, here, our industry experience, and, and that doesn't happen overnight. We've got a lot of years and a huge portfolio in some of our target sectors. That's always been an enormous part of our value proposition is the fact that we have so much relevant experience that isn't just boasting about that, but will directly translate into value for you client because we know your industry, because we have a head start with understanding what you are, what you do, how your market speaks, what types of things they would want with regard to website digital marketing. Um, that's always been a big part of our value proposition. Um, now, again, with us having been doing this for so long, another thing that we can kind of boast about is we have lifelong relationships. We've got clients that have literally been with us for 20 years. Um, we're in an industry where there are a lot of quick hitters and there's a lot of fly-by-nighters and we can, we can proudly stand on some of these long relationships. So some of the examples that I'm using here might not be all that relevant for somebody else, um, but there's always something. There's something that you can, and it's not always going to be unique. You, you, you have to sometimes get creative with determining a differentiating value proposition. I know that one time I, I, I remember learning about an, an ad campaign that one of the, one of the soda companies did back in like the seventies or eighties. And they, they said in an ad campaign, we sterilize our bottles. Okay. Well, it turns out the FDA requires that and everybody has to sterilize their bottles, obviously, before you're packaging a product to go out to the masses with soda in it. Um, but they actually used that as, as a, as a, as a differentiator. Um, and it worked. And so sometimes your differentiator might not be all that different. Um, but if you can get creative about it and say it in a way that everybody else isn't saying it, um, it'll work out. So, um, so I recommend everybody sits down and really takes, you know, an honest look at what they're good at, what they're not so good at, where the opportunities are in the market, and how they can bring those together to develop a position in the marketplace that's going to be a little bit unique than the millions of other competing web developers. No, that's... Oh. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, we're going to go to our commercial break really quick, and then when we come back, we're going to be talking more with Bill Gadless, president of Imagine. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. 
They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. We're coming back from the break and we're talking with Bill Gadless. One thing that we were talking about just a second ago is uh, having a unique uh, value proposition. And I, I think for a lot of people um, too, they, they have a problem not only knowing themselves and having a self-awareness of what they're good at, what their agency is good at, but they find it really hard to pick a vertical or niche or type of client that they serve. And Blair Enns calls this the hard decision in the win without pitching manifesto. Why do you think that so many generalist firms are, have that fear of, of picking uh, a specific vertical or, or type of client that they're trying to find? Yeah, I mean, it's simple. It's, it's the risk of alienating other business that you could potentially be generating in, in exchange for focusing on, on your core. And I get it, you know, we've, so, so some of our example markets that we've focused here and imagine is we're, we're really strong in healthcare and healthcare for us means everything from biotech to pharmaceutical companies, medical devices, hospitals, insurance, health IT. Um, I probably left a couple out of there, but it's, it's a broad market. Um, and then we also do work in, in a variety of B2B sectors, manufacturing, professional services, high tech. We've done a lot in construction. Um, so it sounds like it's somewhat of a long list, but that's actually a very contained list in terms of all of the various industries and, and markets out there that you could serve. Um, and for our first few years, we were not focused at all. And I'd say that's very typical in this industry. We were doing anything for anyone um, that would pay the bills. And we started to develop some verticals, I would say somewhat by accident. I mean, we're, we're in the Boston region. Boston is flush with tech and biotech companies because of all of the universities and so forth. And, um, and so because there were just so many of those around us, there were a lot of VCs, there were a lot of funded companies that were small startups um, that actually were our bread and butter for, for about a decade straight. And, and once we got a few of those, um, without even really focusing on it, that's around the time that we decided we should focus on it. Because again, we've got this portfolio, we've done several, we can go out there and show this work, um, and we can become the company that works for this type of organization, and therefore the reason you should choose us, because look at how many companies we've done work for that are similar to you. Um, it's a, it's, it makes the pitch very strong. And so... So it wasn't because we came from a background in those industries. It was because we had developed some clients in those industries, but then came the decision to actually focus on them. And with that, if you're going to focus on a few industries or one industry in certain cases, you do risk alienating potential business that is not in those industries. And I think that that's a fear that a lot of, um, a lot of agencies and a lot of independents would have, um, that I get my work from a variety of types of companies and industries, um, maybe who are finding me. Um, and I don't want them to see that I just work in these two industries and not in theirs. Uh, I get it. And, and short, term and, and short-term, immediate-term are always important for all of us in terms of cash flow and paying the bills. But in the big picture, I can say anybody would be wiser to focus on 
a few good things and be great at them, um, even if there might be some short-term pain in doing so, in the long term, it will pay off big time to be very focused um, and, and be able to do more work for similar types of companies um, that you've done. Um, people will pay more. People will pay a premium price if you've done relevant work. We've had proposals where we have literally been double the price of the competing proposals, but because of our relevant experience, we were the, cho we were the choice. Um, and I'm not talking from huge companies that have unlimited budgets. It's not always the case, but they, they valued our relevant experience so much um, that they would pay double what they, what they were receiving other proposals for. Um, so it gives people a level of comfort um, you've, you've heard the ad slogan, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Um, that was a big IBM slogan a long time ago. And, and, and it holds true people, people in these companies, whether it's their own business or whether they work for another business, you need to minimize their risk. And by you being the trusted partner that works in a given sector, um, it greatly minimizes their risk in choosing you. So I think focus is, is critical. That makes a lot of sense. Instead of keeping, instead of being the, the, the agency that's trying to keep all their options open, when you pick one um, type of vertical, or, or maybe, you know, if you're large, you have a couple, but you speak their language, you have a proven track record of success. You can say, here's all the similar projects that we've done, and they were successful, and here were the outcomes. And, yeah. and like you said, it minimizes risk. Um, you know, when it comes to, to getting new clients, and stuff like that. We've heard a lot about inbound marketing, content marketing. Um, have you guys found success with that? And what are some other uh, types of, of marketing that people should be considering as an agency? Yeah, so I'm going to be really candid um, about our, um, our approach to sales and marketing, how it's evolved, um, what our strengths and weaknesses are here, um, because I, I hope that my authenticity here might benefit somebody else um, in, in terms of what we've seen. So, so for years, we were, I would, I would say for many years, we were strictly an outbound agency because, I mean, the term inbound didn't even exist. I mean, obviously, SEO and, and, and PPC and things like that have been around for a long time, but, um, but the term inbound didn't really exist. And, um, and, and we were so good at outreach and defining our our target clients and 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 doing the appropriate research in terms of company size and and location and industries and finding the appropriate decision makers and then reaching out to them with a variety of of, of tactics from direct mail to relentless cold calling to cold emailing um, for many many years that's how we generated the vast majority of our business. Um, over the past few years, that's changed. And it's changed because um, it's become less effective. And there's just a new paradigm in B2B sales and marketing. I mean, the buyer today is more empowered than ever to seek out options for a problem that they have and that they need to solve. And, and with that, um, we definitely have found that although we will never, ever completely eliminate the outbound efforts 
um, here. I mean, as we speak, I've got people on the phone calling prospective clients. Um, it's, it's definitely morphed a lot more into a mix, a holistic mix of inbound tactics, outbound tactics, and the lines are blurred between those. So, so what I mean is, so, so a recent development here is we've signed on with HubSpot's entire suite. Um, and their suite consists of primarily for us is their marketing automation tool. Uh, that was the major investment for us. It's a really robust, powerful tool that HubSpot has that's going to allow us to do a lot of highly targeted persona-driven marketing um, and very trackable um, so we'll be able to measure, tweak, test. So, so we've got the tool in place. I think the tool is less important um, than, than the actual tactics that we're going to be utilizing that tool for. Um, but that's going to be – the HubSpot tool is going to allow us to do some very targeted emailing. We will continue to follow up and mix that emailing with calling. We're, we're creating a ton of content to put on our blog. We're creating some long-form content in terms of eBooks, white papers, um, webinars, which is all fall under, I would say, the content marketing inbound category. Uh, but you know, where I, where I mean the lines are blurred is email and outbound are an inbound tactic. I mean, we're using HubSpot's tool, which they consider to be inbound. Um, to me, email is outbound. Uh, we're out, we're reaching out with email and, and phone calls. I don't think that's inbound, but the, the point is, I think that inbound, outbound, all the tactics, anything that you can employ that has proven to be effective for others, um, because it takes a long time to prove it for yourself. So study, listen, listen to people like me who's doing it, read from some of the experts, um, subscribe to a lot of blogs and, and feeds, um, people who are talking about this stuff and employ some of the tactics that you're that you hear work. So for us today, as we sit here, our mix really consists of um, we've, we've defined the various personas at our target clients. Okay, so that's not just defining industries, but who are the various decision makers and cheerleaders that we might that we might want to speak to in those companies. So it could be everyone from the CEO to the VP of marketing, to the director of marketing, depending on the size of the organization you're talking to, there might be anywhere from one to 10 people you would contact within that company. Um, so yeah, sure, in giant, giant companies, they might have a marketing department of 20, 30 people. We don't really target companies that big, but we're targeting companies that are big enough where we at least want to be in the ear of the CEO, the CFO, anybody in marketing, VP, director, marketing manager, webmaster, head of digital marketing. There's a variety of titles. Um, IT. IT plays a major role in the decision um, in certain cases, unfortunately, um, because it can be a little bit difficult to, um, to convince them in terms of using the platform of your preference. Um, but IT plays a role, and we have to accept that, and we need to speak to them. Um, and anybody else that's relevant to these decisions, we're actually putting sales people in sales into our uh, into our personas because we think even they might play a role in terms of decisions related to the website. So we're defining those personas. We're we're um, we're reaching out to them with a variety of highly targeted messages, content that we know are going to pertain to the pains that they have, combined with phone calls, combined with good content on our blog um, and on our website. 
that will be search engine optimized and hopefully allow them to find us as they're looking, um, as well as we're kind of on a hiatus from advertising at the moment while we're building our own new website, but we're launching our own new website within the next month, and then we're going to get back into PPC um, and doing some more AdWords and remarketing and all that stuff too. So that's the mix of things we're doing right now. Um, and in terms of how it's all working, it's, it's a constant day-to-day um, up and down in terms of testing tactics, and that's what I recommend anybody does. I, I really love how you guys approach that because I, I think there's too much uh, – sometimes we rely too much on, like, just one channel, like whether it's social or email or uh, whatever. But yeah. you guys are doing – you're saying, like, hey, we're going to do everything, in, inbound, outbound, all these things. We just got to be everywhere because I think a yeah. lot of it is the repetition. Um, it, it is. Uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you, too, and we were talking about – B2B sales, and, and this happens a lot, like say if there's a solo consultant, a small agency, as they move from the smaller fish into the bigger fish, is, is that something that, that throws people off is the, how long the sales cycles tend to get? Can be, for sure. Um, but it varies. It, it's, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, in that, so as an example, we've, we've done a lot of targeting to hospitals and we have a few clients who are hospitals. Um, they're the types of organizations that because everything is done by committee, and I mean by big committee, from boards to, um, to a lot of meetings among executives down to the marketing team. Um, some of these meetings only happen on a quarterly basis. A, a sales cycle with a hospital, and, and I don't mean the marketing cycle. I mean, we might be nurturing um, and engaging a hospital for a number of years before they actually speak to us. But I mean, from the time they have actually decided they're going to do a project through signature of contract can literally take a year because of the red tape that they have to go through. So with that particular type of organization, it, it can be pretty cumbersome and take a long time. But on the other hand, I mean, we could work with a, a real corporate giant. So for instance, we have, um, I, I probably shouldn't mention names, but we have clients who are divisions of Fortune 500 companies. Um, we can, if they have a pressing need and we happen to be talking to them at the right moment, whether it's from them finding us or us, us reaching out to them and getting lucky that it was the right time, um, they could turn around a contract and a check within 30 days. Um, so I think, yeah, there's the perception. And I think in general, um, other than when there's a rush project and they need to make a decision quickly, you will see longer sales cycles um, the more you move up. And that can be challenging in terms of managing cash flow. We've definitely seen that and we've had to, uh, we've had to accept the terms of, of our bigger clients, even though it's difficult to do sometimes and we don't really want to. I mean, a typical client for us on the smaller side, um, payments are due pretty much when we invoice and they can turn a check around that quickly. And, um, but as you get into the, and we don't work, this is, is not the norm for us, but as you get into some of the really big multi-billion dollar corporations, they will dictate terms that could be 90 to 120 days from invoice in certain cases. 
Um, very, very, I think, difficult to accept those terms, especially when you're small. Um, and we've had a hard time with it too. But, you know, you, hopefully balancing that out with some of your small clients paying quickly while you, while it's worth it to get that business from the bigger account. I will say this, I will say as you get into bigger companies, um, oftentimes their ability to pay quicker um, is, is, is more real than they would lead you to believe. Um, until you're into the multi-billion dollar big corporations, most companies can turn around payments and checks pretty quickly. Um, they might start by telling you that uh, we only run checks every 30, 60, or 90 days, which is just not true. Um, electric companies and utilities companies aren't going to accept those terms. They, they, they cut checks a lot more often than that. Um, so it's worth pushing back to the extent that you're comfortable with. Um, and in certain cases, you will be able to, to negotiate better terms than they will initially present to you. No, that's really great. <clears throat> and, uh, that's great insight. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you, and you touched on it a little bit here, is when you're growing an agency, say if, if you're starting small, you're, you're moving up, you know, you're going from like a couple of people to, you know, five or ten people. What or even bigger, you know, from ten to fifty people. Sure. What are the challenges that you face to stay solvent as an agency, and then what are things that people should prepare for as as they make that jump? Yeah, I mean, cash flow management is is I would say the biggest challenge in our business because, you know, you could be showing a certain number of projects that you've booked, um, in your accounting system and and or however you manage it on a spreadsheet and the contracts that you have outstanding and all the money that you're going to be collecting from clients over the next year from the projects you're doing. Um, but oftentimes that doesn't mean a lot to what your bank account looks like today. So managing cash flow is probably the trickiest component um, in, in terms of finances when it comes to this business. And, you know, I think that, one of one of the ways that we've overcome that as best as possible is is just through balance. As I said, you know, we work with some big companies. We aspire to do bigger projects all the time, um, but 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 still manage to 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 do our smaller projects where they're moving along faster. The clients are paying faster. The the project duration is 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 smaller, um, and and balancing that out. So I think. Managing the growth, um, doing some of the things that I talked about here, which is growing, which is getting bigger money for bigger projects, but knowing where your cash is going to come from tomorrow, um, I think is, is really just knowing what your reality is and not abandoning that while we all need to keep the lights on. Um, I also think one of the really important things that we've done here, and I'll, I'll attribute a lot of this to Brett in the early days, is um, we've had a good recurring revenue base. And so that's through everything from ongoing uh, SEO and digital marketing relationships where it's not just project-based, but that our clients are paying us a monthly or quarterly fee to do the management of those things for them, as well as maintenance and support contracts. Um, for years, we did everything in terms of website maintenance tasks and support stuff. We did all that ad hoc for a long time. And while it was consistent revenue, it wasn't as predictable revenue as if you actually get a client on a support contract. 
So I think that, and we even, we even do hosting for a lot of our accounts. So there's a lot of recurring revenue streams that I think any agency can exploit. And I think it's really important for uh, not only keeping consistent cash flow and staying solvent, but also helping you through some of the down periods. And, and I mean, if you look at how long we've been around, we've had several of those. We, we had, we had post.com bubble. We had post 9-11, which was around that same time. We had the financial crisis of 2008 and beyond. Um, we've had the fiscal cliff that happened back in 2012. There's been a lot of things that, that we've seen that have affected business and our recurring revenue streams helped us get through those times. So that's something I can't encourage enough. I'm super, super glad that you said that because I think recurring revenue is, is something that a lot of um, solo consultants and smaller agencies fail to take advantage of. It builds a foundation for your monthly revenue stream. And it's like you said, it's absolutely uh, something that that is critical uh, to revenue stream. Uh, last question before we let you go for today, and obviously you've built a great team at Imagine. You couldn't, you know, do all the, the the great work that you do for your clients without capable people in all these different positions. How do you hire there, and and what are some of the qualities that you look for in people that you hire? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think it could be somewhat subjective and. I think even if Brett and I were sitting here right now, we might answer this a little bit differently. Um, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've always focused on hiring good people, um, probably a little bit more on, on um, hiring the most talented or the most technical savvy people. And that's not to downplay the talent we have here. We have immensely talented, intelligent people who are, we are very fortunate to have. Um, but I've also met and interviewed uh, dozens and dozens of extremely intelligent, talented, creative people who I didn't mesh with and who I didn't feel were going to be a cultural fit within this organization um, and who I didn't feel might be here for five or 10 years. Uh, and while that's never a guarantee, I always want to feel as though that potential is there, that, that, that this individual is going to be the next member of the imagined family. And, 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 we, and we literally do have a lot of those relationships here. And it would be unrealistic to, to think that, that, that we can only hire that way and that we can only hire people that we want to hang out and have a drink with after work. I don't think that should really be the basis, um, but you do really need to like the people that you're, that you're working with. And so whether that's hiring employees, whether that's a contractor, whether that's a partnering relationship, um, I've always put that first. Um, obviously, they need to know what they're doing. They need the skill set. They need to be able to do the job that you're hiring them for. Um, but I personally put a big emphasis on, on good people. And, um, and that's, that's been my number one philosophy. Now, you know, it, it's not that Brett, my partner would disagree with that, um, at all, but Brett puts a lot of emphasis on hiring the best people, um, for the job. And I think it's been a mission of his to, to, to find the most talented, um, smartest people that we possibly can to do these jobs. And, and that's a challenge, um, because again, we're in a business where there's millions of web designers, there's millions of web developers. 
finding the ones that can do the job really well is a challenge. Uh, one of the things that we've done, um, and this has been just a just an, an example of us trending with the times, uh, we used to be, in terms of our hiring, because we have a headquarters here um, and we actually have offices, a lot of people in our industry don't. It's a very uh, it's a very virtual business that we're in. We have tended to hire people mostly who could show up at our office every day. Uh, most of the people that work for Imagine are in this office or a few of them down in our Florida office. Uh, but we recognize um, the need to hire a few more remote employees because the uh, the odds of us finding the best person for each position who happened to be located within a 15 or 20 mile radius of one of our offices is low. There's going to be people out there who can do the job very well and who might not be within driving distance to our office. They might be many states away or across the country. Um, and we've recognized that. And so um, I wouldn't say that it's that it's come easily. And the biggest reason for that is it's it's tough to be a hybrid. We see some um, we see some entirely remote companies like a 10 up. And then we see companies like us who are mostly in an office being a hybrid of those two can be challenging because you become accustomed to managing in certain ways. Uh, managers become accustomed to being able to go out and tap someone on the shoulder and pull them into a conference room. Um, so, so as you go a little bit more distributed, uh, it comes with some challenges in getting used to that management style and not being able to tap someone on the shoulder and pull them into a conference room. So it's not without its challenges, but we've recognized the need to expand geographically to find the best people. And, um, and so I would say that's, that pretty much sums up our philosophy and our approach. No, that's, that's excellent. I, I definitely, I mean, hiring remotely is uh, a challenge, like integrating it into an existing, uh, you know, method of, of working. You know, if you're used to having everybody in the same place, it's, it's definitely yep. a challenge, but I do get what you're saying is, is to, to get the best and the brightest. Sometimes you have to, uh, you know, think a little differently and, and hiring remotely as part of that. With that, we're, we're just about out of time for this uh, episode podcast. Um, you've definitely imparted a ton of knowledge for our listeners and, and given them a lot of value. And hopefully there's a lot of uh, smaller agencies or agencies that are starting to grow that they'll take this, uh, you know, all this information and, and do something with it. And uh, for our listeners, like how can we get a hold of you? And is there anything that you want to promote, Bill? No, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'll save the promotion and, um, but I'm glad to, um, I'm, I'm glad to open up the communication for your listeners. Uh, people can email me at bill at imagine.com and imagine starts with an E, E-M-A-G-I-N-E.com. So bill at imagine.com. I can be uh, found on Twitter at imagine bill, or you could look me up on LinkedIn, just typing in my first and last name. Um, and uh, I love to communicate with other people in this industry and collaborate. So uh, I encourage anybody to get in touch with me with questions, with thoughts, with advice for me um, and anything that someone might disagree with or have a better way of doing that. I said here today, uh, please get in touch. I'd love it. Excellent. Uh, so for the WP tonic uh, podcast, I'm saying peace out and get your dose. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.